Did I tell you guys a story about the guy in our seminary who ordered a mitre? Like, <laughs> no. He, he, no, that's really yeah. funny, though. No, he ordered a mitre because he thought that God was going to call him to be a bishop, ultimately. Oh. So he just, like, like, he dressed for the wedding, I guess. And God, that's like coming to the <laughs> prayer meeting with an umbrella because you expect right. it to rain. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here once again with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. That's a real load off, right? Christianity Today tells us that it's okay to use chat GPT to help us write our sermons. Like, yeah, makes the work I, week a lot shorter. Do it by week now. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Sit around. Oh, it's, it's just, I love that the magazine. example of the help, the helpful example is an illustration of Jesus riding a motorcycle. Like, what <laughs> sermon is coming out of this? I can't even. I mean, it's that magazine. I don't know. It's, I. It's just become a, a sort of a character of itself at this point. Um, but yeah, so there we go. I mean, I think it was that article. We've got the go ahead. We've got the go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I think it was that article, but I, I maybe I'm misremembering or connecting it to some other article I read. But like, just the the assumption in the article was that you know they, when they told you in seminary you're going to spend most of your time writing sermons, then uh, they were they just didn't know what actual pastoral ministry is like. And mm-hmm. well, you know, I mean, actually, yeah, there's a lot of things you do, and a lot of things seminary didn't tell you to do. But if you think the main thing in your ministry is admin admin or um i don't know you know mowing the lawn or whatever no the main thing in your ministry is preaching and then and then pastoral care they would all say pastoral care yeah 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 both both and though not not either or and i think primarily the 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 preaching task takes precedence well i think you would say I, i imagine knowing you as i do that you would say that the preaching task is a constitutive part of pastoral care that's right that's right exactly exactly i mean that's how I mean, that, that's, that's how God promises to uh, feed his people, in addition to the Eucharist and the other Sabbath. But the sermon is, is one of the main means of grace in the service. So you can't slack off. You can't yeah. de- de- give it to chat GPT. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, are we sitting, what are we sitting with Lee Gatiss in Gafcon using yeah. chat GPT? Yeah. Making well, you, you were writing like reformational raps <laughs> yeah, that was funny i just remembered that oh we but had chat, wait, we, somebody wrote the chat gpt response from justin welby to the kigali commitment that was amazing oh that was funny that's right wait did did anyone have we ever heard any more about that sermon writing that business that you could you could contract your sermon writing out and someone got caught using the, the, is there any more information about that remember what it's called yeah, it's called Tosent, but I don't think anybody yeah. got caught using it. It's a well-known firm that many people use. What Ed Litton got caught doing was just using J.D. Greer sermon illustrations <laughs> as though he had lived that life. Well, I was, you know, well, I don't see much difference in that um, than ChatGPT. But it's funny, I was talking about no. AI the other day, and you saw that um, they have a Talk to Jesus AI. Have you seen that? Oh, the, I have, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I got in trouble. Well, I made some people upset in my rector's forum uh, last week. Oh, weeks ago I heard I said, this, yes. <laughs> I know, I said, brace yourselves. Now, I know I'm going to get some heat for this, but it's Chad GPT AI with Jesus, uh, which everyone was like roundly, you know, uh, uh, pillory. And of course, I said, this is no different than Jesus calling. 
It's no different. Like this is just <laughs> man, you're, you're, you're like ripping know, these teddy bears out of their arms right now. Is what you're doing? I know. I think I really, I really was sort of kind of bracing myself because you know that was like the third rail of sweet people. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I know, I know. Sweetest, some of the sweetest people I know love that book, and I have to lovingly fry it from their hands, <laughs> sort of. But um, but it is interesting. This AI stuff. You know, I was reading an article about it. So, that, I mean, I guess until it becomes conscience, uh, conscious, um, you know, all it's really doing is just recirculating information that people have already yeah. uh, put out there somewhere. So it's which could lead to the uses that I think would be potentially worthwhile, like coming up with a bibliography or writing an outline for a class, not writing a well, class, but, but help, been... helping you not forget things, helping you know where to look, what to read, that sort of thing. Yeah, I had I asked a bunch of questions that helped me um, with like, you know, I was like, give me a bibliography, like what are the ten top ten books on English Reformation or something, or like the most rare. I mean, it's good as a glorified Google, Google right? a glorified, yeah. you know, research document, research engine. But I mean, I, I I even hesitate to say to have, you know, some people are saying, well, I would never do it to write a sermon, but I'd, I'd use it to respond. In an email to a prisoner i, I oh, just that's even worse. Yeah, that's almost worse. i just would not do that man I mean, you're just it's so <laughs> that's right even if i mean it's it's just ah, i, I guess it could give well, you well that's what like grammarly yeah, you all use grammarly that uh and the, does um, no i would never i would never turn that it, thing on yeah she, she writes as much about grammarly as she writes i have it <laughs> Oh, is he gone? JD is in the car on the way to the mountains of North Carolina. So we will see what happens. Hopefully he'll come back. Um, but let's go ahead and get started. Here he comes. In fact, um, he's going to hear me in the middle of this introduction. Uh, speaking of sermons, uh, we thought we'd talk today about an article that's being shared around on the internet right now, written by a preacher who just preached his last sermon and is leaving the ministry entirely. It's been widely shared over the last week or so. Mostly, I think people who are sympathetic to it are sharing it as some, as saying something about their own experience in pastoral ministry. It's by a guy named Alexander Lang and it is posted on his website, restorativefaith.com, which not for nothing advertises itself as a quote, progressive Christian movement designed to rescue the Christian faith from antiquated doctrine and recast Christianity in a new light. Anyway, Lang's article is basically about how hard in ways both expected and unexpected pastoral ministry actually is. And in the end, he couldn't take it anymore. Pastors quitting the ministry has been a story for a little while now, guys. And this story seems to be striking a chord with some people. What about what Mr. Lang wrote jumped out to you? I mean, I, I, I remember reading the first, I didn't know his uh, theological allegiances until mm -hmm. toward the end of the article when when that kind of comes to the surface i have no um, problem telling people that jesus blah blah like, yeah right right totally <laughs> deconstructing their long-held no, beliefs yeah. that's right <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, that's I'm right. just dismantling their the christian faith of my people and i don't know why they're so upset right so the um so yeah but but the first part i thought oh okay this is just a pastor talking about his about about his experience and yeah you know, i've been i've been at this for 20 something years and I, a lot of it, you know, that definitely resonates. He was talking about his, the depth of emotion and pain that comes from pastoring people as they uh, suffer loss through the de marriages, deaths, births. I mean, uh, it's, it's a, the, role, the emotional roller coaster of being a pastor can be 
incredibly taxing and can and can take it out of you. I mean, some people don't know why pastors have to have a month off um, in the summer, but but I it, they have to have a month, month off in the summer because because it's the, the emotional toll, the spiritual toll that it takes, not just going with people in their in their in their problems, but also the rejection that comes from being a pastor. And I think here's where I think a lot of parishioners don't understand understand this part. You you pour yourself out for people. You really do. If you're a good pastor, uh, you you if someone needs to talk, you you just you make the time. If someone needs to needs to uh, vent, you make the time to hear them. If someone's upset with you, you make the time to hear them, right? And so you're you're just kind of going along with sit with people. But then you know what? It could be that, that someone you pour your life into for ten years just decides, you know what? I I like this other church over here better, so I'm taking off. That's right, right? And that just that tears that tears your heart out, and and that happens not infrequently. And so even if you're growing and you're doing fine otherwise in other ways, when someone like that leaves or, or people, someone you've really just invested in leaves, it just, it's crushing. This article is mentioning also like just the, this, the, the toll it takes in your family. I mean, you, you know, if it, your, your kids grow up in a church, if you stay in one place for a long time and they, they, they form relationships with people who leave with kids who leave, they have to hear sometimes this never happens in my church, but I'm sure it happens in other people's churches. Um, they have to hear people criticizing their father, um, uh, <laughs> um, or, or saying saying negative things about their mother, or you know, it's just it's they're under the micro they're under, they're under the telescope microscope, I guess it is. Um, so just a lot of what this guy was writing in the beginning of the article resonated with me. I I thought it made a lot of sense. Um, I think he wasn't, and we can maybe talk about this later. I think he wasn't differentiated enough from his congregation. And so that's probably why he was letting the, the turmoil become so damaging to him. I think there's ways of not letting it destroy you. Like it <laughs> kind of destroyed him. Um, but that's just the pastoral part. We can talk about the, uh, we can talk about the doctrinal aspect of it too, but the pastoral part, I thought I, I resonated with that a lot. Well, I think it's connected though, Matt, and I totally agree with you. I mean, I think you know, everything you said is, is a, a reality of, um, you know, being a pastor, uh, but but I think that it's it's related to the theological or doctrinal errors that he has because a part of me wanted to know, or you know, as I was reading it, I was like, well, what did he expect? You know, I mean, what sort mm -hmm. of human being was he expecting yeah. to interact with, um, other than you know, a self interested sinner who was in the process, hopefully, of being refined and sanctified. Although if he wasn't, you know, it turns out he wasn't preaching anything like the actual, you know, gospel, then I, I'm not surprised that he didn't see much fruit being born, you know, certainly in the, in the, in the areas of repentance and confession and absolution and, and restoration. But, you know, he kept, he kept talking as if he were shocked that there would be sinners in the church. And, and so I, I have a lot of sympathy with a lot of his observations like you do, Matt, too. At the same time, you know, having positioned from a theological perspective, uh, you know, the various churches that I've served from the pulpit um, with an expectation that, you know, this is going to be part of our, um, you know, to use the phrase messy journey, you know, here with um, with sinners coming to to repent and and confess and be absolved and restored. And, you know, again, I don't like that when those when people hurt me uh, any more than anyone else does. But I also have been in the position of inadvertently hurting people. And, you know, in a Christian community, that's part of the part of the, the glory of God is the forgiveness found in the midst of this, uh, you know, this this broken life. And so 
again, I, I share with you, and we, we can talk, we should, about some of the specifics he mentioned. Um, but I thought that the shock that he was, or sort of the, the he, was, he was communicating a, a, you know, sort of a contempt almost for the people in his church who were still evincing their need for mercy and forgiveness. And I said, well, you know, I don't know what you were taught about what people were supposed to be like or what sort of awareness you have of yourself. But, um, you know, that people in the church can be just as, as fallen as people outside of it is not a surprise, but it is, it is an area for opportunity and concern. But, um, you know, that would be where you would have to bring the actual law and gospel to bear from the pulpit in a way that would require some convictions about Orthodox Christianity that he doesn't seem to, um, you know, by the end, it's getting clear that it's not really what part of his, um, his concern. I have one more overarching observation before we get into the nitty gritty specifics. My, my impression reading it, and I don't, I don't want to try to claim that I never have thoughts about my own skills and things that I might think of myself as good at, which, which I do. I'm human in that way. But he, he spent a lot of time talking about the things that he felt like he was really good at. And he admitted, like we all would, that there were some aspects of things that he had to do in the church that he wasn't good at and, and that it wasn't fair, as we would all agree, that the church would expect one human to be excellent at all sort of eight job roles that traditionally fall to a church pastor. The thing that I missed that I didn't see in the article was any sense of awe or like falling on one's face at the feet of Almighty God, thinking that that you've been um, set aside for a vocation to communicate the truth of God's word to people. Not that that I don't want to say there was no humility, but there wasn't that kind of humility. Like, yeah. oh my goodness, I am chosen in this way. This is overwhelming in the sort of Isaiah six, like, oh my gosh, I am a man of unclean lips. Am, do you really want to choose me, God? I, I didn't hear any of that. And I, so it sounded to me like the kind of typical, I'm on a spiritual journey and I expected this congregation to go along with me on my spiritual right. journey. And, and they weren't, they weren't mature enough to do that. And so I've got to continue my spiritual journey apart from this congregation. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I wanted to join the people who are worthy of, who are ready to explore and question and challenge. And I was going to be the leader in that. And they're just not, you know, these people are just not, uh, not up to this, up to the snuff. Uh, yeah, there's, there's no sense of, of the, of the humility of being called to, to be a under shepherd in Christ's church at all. It's totally great right. observation. Well, you know, it's, you know, it's just a classic sort of progressive, you know, mainline liberal appeals to horizontal community you know just the whole thing it was like you know he was there uh and you hear this in every other sermon you know in other mainline churches about how you know we're building this uh, this community it's always about the um sort of, of love and and you know acceptance and tolerance and all these things and the problem is again back to my original point is if you if you don't understand what's actually what is actually prohibiting people from embracing community namely their sin then you're going to keep yelling at them, you know, or you're going to get more frustrated with them and start speaking in sterner, sterner tones, getting louder and louder until finally, you know, your 9,000th sermon about love like Jesus did is going to fall on deaf ears and you're going to leave. And I think, you know, I've seen this increasing frustration, you know, in various other mainline churches, people are wondering, like, why can't you, why can't you get with the program? You know, that why can't you get it? 
because it seems so obvious that what you need to do is just love sweet love, you know? And it's, again, if, if you don't understand how we've been loved, if you don't understand um, what the cost of that love was, and you don't have a sense of, of all uh, in, in front of it, namely the, you know, the foolishness and the power of the cross, well then, you know, this is what's going to happen. And, and I feel for the guy. I mean, in a sense, I mean, I don't, it, it wasn't a pleasant read for all sorts of reasons, but, but I do hope that he doesn't fully deconstruct and become, you know, like the Derek Webb, um, yeah. you know, version of a, a PC USA pastor, but he certainly does. He certainly seems to be on that trajectory. I also think there's like, I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad that JD mentioned a minute ago, you mentioned the connection between being able to, to stay the course as a pastor and, and theology, right? Because what you do, and I know you guys know this, I'm not, I'm not teaching anybody anything, but what you do as a pastor, when a parishioner hurts you and runs off, leaves the congregation, just whatever, is you have Christ, right? You, you got, he is your consolation. He's your comfort. You have, and, and so, and that's that going, having him in your life, uh, imparting his love to you and his comfort to you enables you to go on the next morning and preach the, preach the sermon if you have to. Okay. You, you can still continue in your job because you have Christ who's actually taking the burden of the pain, not taking it away, but who's helping you bear it, right? We say this in every time we do marriage counseling, is it, is it you, uh, you know, your your both of your tasks, both your jobs are for the rest of your life is to give yourself over, sacrifice yourself for the good of your of your spouse. And guess what? You're not going to be able to do that. I mean, you, you that you're going to sin against each other every day. So you need the gospel. You also though need you need Christ to give. You need to your husband or your wife cannot be your Jesus, and and so you have to have jesus be the one who bears that pain for you rather than your husband or wife same thing is true of the congregation your congregation it cannot be your your jesus it can't be the thing that saves you it can't be where you find your life it can't be where you find your salvation it's jesus is and um and he's the one who who is who can give you the strength to go on for 20 30 years and and still be sane <laughs> yeah. yeah is this the differentiation that you were referring to before yeah, I mean, I think so. So I think I'll go back just for a minute to the husband-wife analogy I was using. So often in, in a husband-wife scenarios, one person is more needy than the other, right? So you have maybe the husband is more needy for his wife, and his wife is not as needy, or, or vice versa, however it goes. And usually in those situations, what's happening is is the, the more needy person is kind of sucking the life out of the other one right? because because they've, they've begun to set that other person in the position that only Jesus, only Jesus should occupy um, as your, as a satisfaction, as, as the, the bread of life is the source of, of strength and satisfaction. So you that, that person can't bear that weight. Right. So, you, so, so ultimately what's happening is, is that person's just being the, the, the non needy person is being depleted and trying to get away from the needy person. So what we try to tell people to do is that you need to differentiate yourself. You need to find, you need to, if you're the needy person, you need to transfer that need to someone who actually can bear it and who has come to do that. And that's Christ. And then you can be kind of a, dis, not disinterested, but you can love in a, in a, without in a, needing something in return. Without, exactly, exactly. And that's the same thing in a congregation. A pa every pastor has to learn how to do that. Uh, I know we're, we're we're all kind of needy. Right? We need these people to come to our church. I mean, uh, okay, there's a very basic, material level. Our eating 
depends on people coming to our churches. Um, but right. also there's, there's a lot, there's a lot more in that. I mean, we need them to do our church because we want them to hear the gospel and be saved and, and know Jesus and love him. And that's, that's, if you, if you don't want that, you're not a pastor, you, you need that. And then you, and then there's also, I mean, not just to be honest here, there's the ego, you know, and I, it shouldn't, you should not, this should, this is a sin. I'm not saying it's good, but there's like, you know, someone leaves your church that that's, you think, Oh, I'm, man, yeah, this is, this is, this is, I'm a, I'm a terrible, I mean, am I, am I a bad pastor mm-hmm. or, or, and you, your church starts growing. You think, Oh, I'm an awesome pastor. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is amazing. Um, <laughs> instead, instead of, of course, attributing that to Christ. So, but all of that can be really cured if the pastor, not cured, okay, but it, it can be managed and dealt with if the pastor lays his burdens on Christ and and rests in Christ all the time, always. This is why it's so important if you're a pastor not to let your personal discipline go away, not to stop reading your Bible, not to stop praying. You, you need to do that like every single, not like every single day, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> or you're or you're going to be burnt out and, and destroyed. Well, the, right. this differentiation principle is so visible in so many ways and yet i think so easily forgotten we visited a a small episcopal church in pompano beach florida once and it was like your typical uh 2016 episcopal church with you know 16 older women in it and we walk in and it's me and my wife and my three young children and they were on us like bees on honey i mean they were and it was you could see the desperation in their eyes <laughs> like will you be coming here every week and come into all of our potlucks please do everything and of course there's nothing more off-putting than that right. we all understand that feeling and there's an analog between the idea of loving your neighbor without first acknowledging the fact that you are fully loved by almighty God. You have all of the affirmation. You have all of the stuff that you would ordinarily so desperately seek from other people you have for free already in Christ, which actually frees you up on that horizontal plane to love and not just seek to be like trading favors. You're actually able to love somebody without being so desperate for what they can give you in return. That's right. That's good. Yeah, and I think, and I, I agree with that entirely. And I think, Matt, back to your point too about the, um, you know, this codependency. Like again, it has to do with this sort of theological error that was at the foundation of what this guy was um, attempting to preach from. Because, you know, if you if you are sort of wrestling with you know, core fundamental tenets of the Christian faith internally. Well, then the only recourse you have for any kind of, for lack of a better word, affirmation would be a response from the congregation. Because, you know, if anything, if you're really preaching the gospel to a certain congregation, you know, you might uh, by design get uh, pushback. If you had like the Church of Laodicea or something, you know, and you actually were preaching, you know, straight fire, uh, you know, long gospel sermons, like you might have them all get up and walk out, you know. And if, and if that, it, but again, that would be theologically informed. Um, and hopefully you wouldn't be, you know, making it up by yourself. But I mean, that I think that was part of the part of the problem that I've seen is that these people who, you know, at the very least need to admit to themselves that maybe they shouldn't be preaching, you know, at some point. You know, we've had bishops, remember, in the Episcopal Church who Absolutely. who if they if their friend, brother bishops had had any real sense would have said, you know, took him, taken him aside and said, listen, you need to go get some figure some things out before you before you continue to sow these seeds of doubt and 
and distrust uh, to the sheep. You know, you're poisoning them. And so I think, again, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the aches and pains of being rejected or critical, criticized. You know, people have people in church, for whatever reason, seem to have a lot of freedom just to walk up to you and tell you all the things that you're doing wrong, you know, in a way that I don't know if it happens in other businesses, but certainly seems to be, um, you know, prevalent in this one. Uh, but, you know, so all that hurts. But at the same time, you know, that's what we signed up for. And that's what I kept reading the whole time. I was like, this is what we signed up for. Like, we were, we were. Well, that's the what thing. Did... I don't think he did. Yeah. yeah well. The old saying is that if you can see yourself doing anything else, you should. That's what older pastors tend to say to young men who approach them wondering about ordained ministry. They say, if you can see yourself doing anything else, you should. That's and I right. want to say, I want to say this very carefully with full acknowledgement of who I was when I first started having these, I think I might be called to ordain ministry conversations with older men because I am shy now and was profoundly shy. Then I have a speech impediment. Now I had a speech impediment then I was I, you could have drawn a picture of somebody who looked unqualified to do this, and I would have been that picture. So I want to be very careful about how easy it is to tell from the start who is and who is not called to this. However, I also was at a seminary, I'm sure you guys had similar experiences at yours, where certain people were there and you thought to yourself, really? You're going to do this? This is what you're signing up for? And so there's there there does seem to have to be that earlier question, a little bit of a higher fence. Like it, it's not enough that you are a really cheerful usher at your church. That doesn't mean that you're called <laughs> to eldership in God's kingdom. Do you want to name names at this point? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to go ahead and just drop those I, out? I think I did. I tell you guys a story about the guy in our seminary who ordered a miter. Like. <laughs> No, he, he, no, that's really he, funny though. No, he ordered a miter because he thought that God was going to call him to be a bishop ultimately. Wow. So he just like like he dressed for the wedding, I guess. And God, that's like coming to the prayer meeting with an umbrella because you expect right. it to rain. Right, right. Well, isn't that the well? Isn't that just the, the case? You know, what in, in all of these cases, what we're talking about are people that have misunderstood what the actual you know picking up your cross uh, was going to look like in the in the Christian life period, but not least of which in the ministry. I mean, we were. You know, we were, I mean, the cruciform shape of the life of a minister is, is you know, modeled after Jesus's own life and his, his, his shepherding of his sheep, you know, which ended in his death on the cross, you know, I mean, obviously not ended, but, but uh, resulted. Um, and I think the way I describe what I do um, from a pastoral perspective is I say, you know, I'm, I basically have been, been called to absorb just a lot of emotion and energy from other people, you know, whether it's, whether it's joy, you know, more likely and more often though, it's, it's pain and sorrow and suffering and anguish and de despair and doubt and all these things. That's what I've been called to do is be a, sort of a sponge for that. And if I can't, if I haven't been able to deal with that in my own life by, you know, through the mercies of God, if that hasn't been sufficiently addressed, well, then there, then there's no way you can hold it or handle it. And I think that's where, you know, a good seminary does make an effort to put you in in, in those places of doubt and uh, despair in your own life. You know, I mean, send you like Nick, you know, we had to walk around the, the uh, terminal ICU for 400 hours. You know, granted, it was 
more of pop psychology at the end of it than anything. But that certainly that experience of dealing with people who are, you know, cursing God on the way to, uh, you know, eternal damnation, possibly without our our meager intervention, you know, that sort of sets the stage in a way that that I don't know if this man had any of that experience, but but, you know, that's that's what we signed up for. I mean, I'm reminded of Bo Geertz's book, you know, The Hammer of God. You know, this book, if our listener hasn't read it, it's worth reading at least the first vignette. Bo Geertz was a Scandinavian bishop who wrote a series of uh, vignettes in this book called The Hammer of God to instruct his clergy. In the very first one, there was a party that a young priest was at where it was, you know, cocktail party with linen napkins and silver and everything. And he's called to a pastoral care meeting across the mountain. So he shows up in this uh, pastoral care meeting and it's this little hovel. And this man is, is filthy, you know, covered and he's sick and he's dying. And he's, and the seminarian is caught totally unaware, or not the seminarian, the young priest of how to actually minister to this guy. And finally the uh, man's wife starts just preaching to him, you know, just straight up, you know, that Jesus has got you. Um, you know, his death for your sins, just straight up. Um, and and the priest was silenced at that point and, you know, kind of chastened and, and sort of sulks back to the party. And Bo Geertz is, I don't know, the commentary on it, and somebody may correct me on this, but my, my take on it was that he was, he was chast or he was warning his clergy of what actual pastoral ministry was going to look like. Like it was not cocktail parties and, and napkins and um, linen napkins and silver, although those might be present. But fundamentally, it was about death and resurrection, and it was about sin and damnation and the hope of heaven. And that's going to be a messy business, um, but that's what we've been called to do. So, Matt, you said earlier that at least part of your recommendation for clergy who do not want to suffer the fate of realizing later in their life that they want to give the whole thing up and leave pastoral ministry altogether is to keep reading your Bible keep forming yourself to what other, not, not tips, but, but what, what other encouragement can we offer to um, clergy younger than us or people who are considering a call to the ordained ministry? How, how can, how can they follow in our erudite and wise footsteps? <laughs> we're still standing. Yeah, we're, we are still people. standing. That's right. Okay. So when I say prayer, I, yes, I mean the daily office fine. But, but, but when I say prayer as a pastor, I'm I'm really talking about you daily pouring out your heart. You, you not, not just saying the prayers. I mean, I know, which is fine. Saying the prayers is good, and meaning them is great. That's we're Anglicans. We do that. But but you need to also just desperately call out to god yes god's help every single day i cannot emphasize that enough that's the the first thing i would say that will keep you okay um and you'll see and it'll also increase your faith as you see god acting in ways that uh in your parish in your congregation that um that will confirm to you that he he loves his bride and that he's taking care of her and that it's not on your shoulders. He's, he's, he's actually at work in there, um, in the, in the hearts of the people you're serving. Um, but then secondly, I would say like, if now I, I know that there are some clergy who are not married and so I, this may not, it doesn't apply to them, but, but if you're married, your relationship with your wife, wife, I think is the second most important thing for you keeping your sanity, you being able to, to confide pour out your heart to your spouse who is, your best friend and who will, and who can hear everything you say and help you not, not judge you, not 
not always be your best, not always be your critic, but also your, your best encourager. You need your wife. I, I can't tell you how many times Anne has dragged me out of the pit of despair in my ministry. And uh, sometimes it was despair of my own making. Like I, I, I caused the circumstances that brought us to that point, but Anne, but Anne was able to say, to, to say the words that I needed to hear um, and encourage me and uh, put me back together. And, you know, sometimes that happened like every Sunday, I'd preach a sermon and I would, people would get really upset and then she would put me back together all Monday morning and Monday afternoon and, and uh, I'd be, I'd be okay. Um, so I uh, cultivating your family life is I think the second pillar of that. I mean, your, your relationship with Jesus, then your family, those two things are huge. Um, some would say then you probably have to have some friends outside of the parish, um, I'm an introvert, so I don't need friends outside my parish. <laughs> my my, my I family, <laughs> I don't need friends, but but I think some people do. Like if you're more extroverted, you probably need you probably need to cultivate that. Um, but yeah, that I mean, speaks to knowing yourself. Yeah, yeah. knowing yourself right. is a right. really important thing. Yeah, you, there are some people who you just have to. They have to have like a social outlet that's not the church, so and not the family. So you know, do that. Get that. Get that done. So those are the things I would I would say. You, I mean, you, I don't know. Some people have bishops who are uh, who have either set up uh, other clergy in their diocese who can be counselors to pastors and and confidants for pastors, or they, or maybe some bishops, bishops are that themselves. Don't be too proud to take advantage of that if you need it, because usually bishops are pretty wise in who they who they appoint to to that kind of task. So yeah. so take advantage of that if you need it. Here's a super yeah. practical follow-up question, Matt. You talk about your wife. Do you, or do you recommend some of that emotional weight that we take on from others, like their secret struggles? Do you share that? Is it an, is it an understanding in your church that anything that's shared with you is shared with Anne too? Yeah, I make it known. It, it, uh, yeah, you, there's no secrets between me and Anne. So, okay. um, so someone tells me something, they're, they're going to understand. Usually, Anne knows knows what the thing is, and it also is helpful because you know sometimes you know this is this is a family dynamics in a church are are interesting because off not often, but sometimes congregants will try and drive a wedge between you and your wife, and so they'll. Yeah, I've had people come to confide with confide to me their problems with Anne. And I, oh, well, <laughs> that's not the kind say, of secret I meant. That, that's a no brainer. <laughs> I'm not going to confide. You're not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not the person for you. You need to go talk to Anne. I've gotten over it. I've gotten over it, Matt. I've gotten over it. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. We worked. We worked it out. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think that is important to let your parish know if you, if you're, if you're going to talk to your wife about everything, which I think you should, you need to let your parish know that's, that's expected. That that's going to happen. Now that doesn't mean every single detail is going to tell me I share, her. but if I'm upset about something, I'm going to share it with her. And, right. and that's, yeah. I think that you really can't downplay, you know, fellow clergy who, are your friends and confidants. I mean, I don't think there's any, I mean, I certainly couldn't have survived. I mean, I barely survived in uh, Europe, but for calling you, you know, Nick, like every three days <laughs> for like six hours. <laughs> um, and then St. Francis isn't even here for that matter. I mean, you know, this past year was uh, without 
an associate was really was was taxing on me in a way that that I'm just now starting to realize. And I'm grateful for the Lord's you know mercy. I mean, I didn't you know it was a great year, it was wonderful. But but I do I have forgotten how important and and helpful it has been to have just someone right there you know as another set of eyes and ears and and encouragement. And of course, this has been very helpful too. But I think when people don't have that, then you know then they're just sort of they're off there on their own. And I think that just puts them in an, in, in an unnecessarily vulnerable position. So I think that would just be an, an, addendum, an addendum to your um, having friends outside the parish, if you so desired. Um, but, but that's what I remember what I was going to say. Now, you know, you talked about Anne and I think it just extends if you are married and you, and you have the blessing of children in particular, but even if it's just your, your marriage, I think that, you know, you often see people and they'll admit this, you know, sacrificing their, their time at home or their time with their family for the sake of quote unquote success of the church. And I think that's just not only wrong, but, but a misguided understanding of how yeah. the Lord will actually use your life to bring a blessing through you to the church. Because if, you know, I mean, the, the, the analogy is direct. Like if you, your own household is in order, then you have yeah. the ability and authority to lead the household of God. And so if it's not, um, well then you need to step back you know, from whatever, you, you know, from the sixth Bible study you were doing, you know, uh, at eight o'clock, right at bedtime and dinner time every day and tell your congregation that, you know, I mean, I told, I asked, got, had a long conversation with our bishop, you know, which was very fruitful and just saying, you know, I'm, I've got young children and they're very, you know, they're sort of easily managed, you know, because I can't, I can still pick them up and things, you know, right now, but you know, there's coming a time where I've seen people hit different stages in life and they've had a real hard time with their children. And, and I've told my congregation this too, that my first priority will be to, you know, in the event that I have to sort of have more time with them, like that's for your sake is because this yeah. is part of the part of, you know, me staying healthy and healthy enough for you. And I think that's, again, that's, you, you see that in some of these people who leave the ministry, you know, it's because they, you know, they end up getting a divorce or they have a, you know, one of their children, you know, goes sort of goes way off the rails or, 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 you know, they get caught in some sort of compromising situation that they wouldn't have otherwise been in. You you would think, you know, they certainly didn't wake up the year before they ended up, you know, with their secretary or whatever saying, no, this is going to be the year that my family's going to fall apart and I'm going to leave the ministry. You know, there you have it. And so all of these are insights, thankfully, that um, were shared with me back to your initial opening, Nick, for, with, from older men, you know, who have gone through the process, some of whom bore some of these scars themselves and wanted just to help, you know, me avoid them. And I think, you know, the older I get, I mean, I'm grateful that the Lord has spared me from some of the scars, certainly out of my own, but, you know, I'm interested in helping share that now with the next generation, like, and in the hopes that, when someone gets into this, they know what they're getting into, but also that they're prepared for a life, a long lived ministry. It's definitely a heavy weight, but what a blessing. I mean, I don't, I literally can't imagine doing anything else. Praise God for his promise in Isaiah 55, that his word will indeed accomplish the tasks for which he sent it almost despite us, but that we get to participate in some small way is an amazing joy. Thank you for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you, J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.